Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. You know what's really important to me when I do business with a company is trust and transparency. I've been telling you now for a good while about my buddy Damon Burton and his company, SEO National, because trust and transparency are just as important to them. You know, for the last 15 years in the search engine optimization space, they have been leading the way and serving people tremendously well. Now, for those of you that don't know what SEO is, it stands for search engine optimization. It helps you show up higher on Google searches so that folks that are looking for what you have find you quicker. And you know what's really encouraging? More revenue, more sales, growing your business. Do me a favor, get in touch with Damon and his team today at SEO National at 855-736-6285 or go to seonational.com and get your free quote and tell him you heard it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I hope you're ready because here comes a dynamite conversation on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. Uh, recording on the road. It is a, a joy to record on the road. We're not in our usual haunts. I don't have any, I, my studio is just a, a green screen behind me. You get the nice Intentional Encourager podcast virtual background. If you're watching on YouTube, we've got some pictures and things behind me. Again, recording on the road today, but it is an honor to speak to a dynamic lady. And, and trust me, you are going to enjoy this conversation. It's going to be conversation that is powerful and riveting. And that's what we try to do here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I have authored, she has written multiple books. She has written books like Dance Like There's No Tomorrow. And Just Fine, thank you. That is, th those those two books, we're going to get into those titles. Those are incredibly good titles. I wish I had titles that good to books. But she's an author, a counselor, and she helps people. She encourages people. And it's a joy to welcome Evelyn Lighty to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Evelyn, how are you today? I am really good. Thank you, Brian. I, let's start here. And, and I have started here the last two years. But I want to get different perspective. And Evelyn, here's the thing. When we started the Intentional Encourager podcast, we, we launched our first episode in April of 2020, almost two years ago. And at that time, everything was uncertain. And now we here we are two years later, and we're still facing some uncertainty. Take me through the last two years, how you've kind of dealt with things during the the COVID nineteen pandemic, and what is a what is a lesson that you've learned that you'll take from it once this and I believe it it this this thing is going to be over with I, I really do. Um, the Bible tells us that nothing comes to stay; it comes to pass. And so, you know, how how have you dealt with the last couple of years and a lesson that you have learned from it that you'll carry through after this is all over with? Well, I always knew this, but the last couple of years has really proven to me that God does not let us down. He's been with me every step of the way. 
I had a severe case of COVID. It went on and on and on, and I ended up in the hospital with a stroke from the blood clot. And yet I surrendered to him completely, prayed to him, and woke up the next day in the hospital, able to walk out and be just fine. My COVID uh, has hung on in a cough and in some brain fog. But other than that, he has been with me every minute of the last two years and before that. But I really am so much aware of him now. Evelyn, I have brain fog, but it's just because I, I, I'm getting to be 50. I'll be 50 in August, and I'm starting to, to realize I can't remember things like I used to be able to. Like, you know, where's my keys or what city am I in today or something like that, you know. But it's funny because you have, you know, being an author of multiple books, and I want to go, I'm going to go here for just a minute. We'll talk about the books here in a little bit, but here's where I want to go. Did it scare you that you had some brain fog? Because I know in writing the one book, and you've got multiple books, did it did it concern you that you had brain fog? Because most people, and I know people that have written several books, and they are very well able to take their thoughts and encapsulate them and be able to communicate clearly what they want to say in the book that they're writing. I can't imagine trying to write a book dealing with some brain fog. Did that concern you at all? Did it, did it, did it, did you kind of ever say, wow, is this going to, you know, is this going to affect how I, how I communicate, how I write, how I help people going forward? No, actually it didn't because when you grow up in a dysfunctional home, you live with brain fog, you live with unreality and confusion and what's going to happen next. And so, no, that never even occurred to me. Wow. Because I would, again, I would think, and I'm just taking some notes here. So if you see me look away, I would think that I think, and I, and I've heard that, that common theme around folks that have had COVID that I've had some brain fog and things like that. And, and I joke about that, but, but it is, and I don't mean to make light of it. It's the, is the, I think sometimes the busyness of life gets us to the point to where we start to go, because I have times like that. I have times where I'm like, I feel like I didn't write something down that I needed to write down or I, I've let some, you know, I was like, oh, how did I, how did I forget that? And, and you feel like at times you have so much going on that it causes that. You talked about growing up in a dysfunctional home, and we'll talk about that later as we get into your story. Is there a way that the dysfunction that you grew up with, is there a way that it's caused you as an adult to really be more, did you find yourself being more hyper-disciplined or hyper-focused because of the way you grew up in so much dysfunction? Well, I am hyper-focused because I have ADD and that goes with trauma sometimes. Um, I didn't really, when I focus on writing, I just write for the love of it. And that is part of the thing that has really helped me survive 
is writing writing because I love it and because it helps me clarify things. It helps me feel grounded. And because I often ask God to tell me what to say, and I really believe that he does. You mentioned writing for the fun of it, but you also mentioned it, it it's a survival technique. Those are two diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, um, writing because you want to tell a story or you want to do something to help someone, but then it being a survival mechanism. When you first began to write your, your books, did you, ha did you have to tap into that part of your brain? Because I, 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 and here's where I'm going with this. I'm really intrigued by what you just said there. Because I would think writing as a survival technique would be, okay, I've got to get something out of me to help me as a coping mechanism. Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of trying to compartmentalize this. But then the other side would, would be, I write for the fun of it because I enjoy the process or I enjoy the, the being able to craft language in such a way that that is inspiring or you write something you're like oh I, I didn't realize that i had thought about it that way for you when you begin to write what kicks in the most for you is it the survival technique or is it the the fun of it because i've never heard writing described in such a diametrically opposed way and i'm fascinated by it the first book I wrote was in 1980, and it was a story of what it's like to live with an alcoholic abuser husband. And I wrote that out of revenge, not at him, but at all the professionals who couldn't help me because they didn't understand the disease. Mm -hmm. I actually, I felt bad for him. But I went to ministers for help. I went to sheriffs for help. I went to a lot of people for help. And mostly what they told me is, what are you doing to make him hit you? What are you doing to cause this problem? Few of them understood the disease of alcoholism. And I wanted people to know that this is a disease and that abusers don't want to be abusive and that there's hope and there's help. So you were the one, and, and I forgive me for jumping ahead, but I'm I'm so fascinated by that, and I and and I'm fascinated, and I'm dumbfounded at the same time. Hearing hearing this, Evelyn, because you're not the one doing the crime, so to speak, and that is a crime. Physical abuse against another person is a crime. And in many places, it's a felony. You can't do that. But yet you are told, what are you doing? Why are you causing the problem? When you think back to that time, and you, and you said you wrote your book out of revenge, I can imagine, I'm trying to put myself in that situation, if I felt like I had no other recourse but to go, okay, well, if you think I'm the, pro the provocateur here, then we'll see about that. You know, how did you, how were you able to 
coherently, succinctly, and tactically right when all this emotion was swirling around you? Is, is that a fair way to, to ask that? Because that's exactly what I'm thinking in my mind is, how do you keep everything so compartmentalized and, and, and get the job done when everything around you is chaos? Well, compartmentalizing things is what you learn to do when you're young and you grow up in a dysfunctional home. You learn how to be just fine, thank you, whenever anybody approaches you. You learn how to pretend that you come for the best family in the world. You learn how to behave in such a way that no one would ever question you. So when I was writing the book, I could remember conversations word for word because I have a photographic memory. And as I started writing, I just couldn't stop. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote until I had the book finished. And then when I looked at it, I thought, nobody's ever going to believe this story. But I sent it in to Hazleton Publishing Company, which is a treatment center still very well known today. And they grabbed it right off the bat because everybody understands that story who's been in an abusive relationship. Wow. I, I, I just am... And I, I, I can relate a little bit. I can't relate fully. My dad, my dad used to, to tell me when I was a kid and my dad believed in spanking and we were never abused, but I was the oldest. I I'm the oldest and the only male mm -hmm. of, of my family. I have two sisters, so I'm the only boy child and I'm the oldest. And my dad used to always say when I, when he would spank me, he would say dried up. And I can remember when my dad passed away suddenly, almost 10 years ago, that same mechanism kind of kicked into, into me. I heard my dad say, at that time, I was 40 years old. Try uh -huh. it up. And so, again, I, I, can, I can emphasize, and I, I think there's a lot of folks that are listening to this conversation that have gone through those hard times and they've either been told to suck it up or they've been told to dry it up or I'm just fine. Thank you. You know, let's move on to another topic. I don't want to talk about it. And sometimes I get that way too. And my, my wife will say, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I'm just fine. Thank you. Yes. How long did you have to, when, when, how long did it take you? And I want to go here and then we'll take a break. How long did it take you to tell the truth, not only to yourself, but to other people and say, I'm not fine. I'm glad you asked, but I'm not fine because you, you have to intentionally break that behavior from a child. Don't you? How long did it take you to, to say, no, what, you know what? I'm not fine. I'm going to be honest with, with myself and other people. My first book came out and everybody that knew me was blown away. No one knew what was going on. There's only one person that knew what was going on in our family and that was my child. And all my best friends could not believe this story, but it's like, I'm tired of secrets. What makes this disease so powerful is all the secrets behind it. Everybody keeps everybody's secret 
and then nothing ever comes to light. And so I decided this is coming to light and I'm not lying anymore. But I got to tell you, I was a drinker myself. I now have 41 years of sobriety. Wow. Wow. 41 years of sobriety. Evelyn, I'll be 50 in August. I mean, again, I, you know, I can't, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of wearing that as a badge of honor. You know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, okay, I'm making, I've made it to, and you've been sober for that long. That is, that is incredible. My hat's off to you. Let's step aside and take a break. I want to, to pick up there. Okay. And we're talking about, and I love where this conversation is going because we are, weaving your story into your books. I usually would do this a different way, but I'm not going to apologize for the way this is going because this is why we have the conversations that we have and the format that we have them in is so that we can just have an incredibly good conversation. We're having that with author, counselor, Evelyn Lighty, who joins me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast back in just a moment. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. The new year is upon us and you may be sitting there thinking, hey, I would really love to pay off some debt or I would like to save for that dream vacation. Maybe you want to buy a new car, whatever it is you want to do financially in the coming year. Let me give you a great piece of intentional encouragement and something to think about that might help you do it. Products for Profit. Now, this is a course taught by my good friend, Joe Hart, who's been a guest on the Intentional Encourager podcast and has told his story how reselling changed his life. And you know what, folks? It could do the same thing for you too. It's really simple. Reselling is basically buying a product and then reselling it online for more money. And Joe is going to take you through the steps and show you how to do this either part-time or maybe as some of his students have done, take this full-time as well. Go to coachjoe89.gumroad.com backslash L backslash premium PFP. And oh, by the way, this group is going to help you find leads of products that are profitable right now, give you all kinds of great intentional encouragement. And you're going to be surrounded by a community of people that are going to want to see you be successful in the reselling game. Again, go to coachjoe89.gumroad.com backslash L backslash premium PFP and tell him you heard about it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Evelyn, you mentioned before we took a break, 41 years of sobriety. Do you remember the day let me, let me, let me, no, I'm going to want to ask it this way. Cause everybody would ask about, ask it this way. Do you remember the second day of sobriety? Everybody remembers the first day, right? They have, it's like an anniversary, it's like, or a birthday. You know, you know what your birthday is. You know what an anniversary is. Do you remember the second day of sobriety? that after this after the first i do i was working as a director in an outpatient alcoholism treatment program so you were trying to help people get sober and you weren't sober yourself not until that second day wow take me through that day what was that like 
Well, once I put the plug in the jug, I started to have anxiety attacks. And especially when I would go to work, it was, it was an outpatient treatment program. We had several alcoholics in there. And I had a coworker and we were, of course, doing everything in our power to help them get sober. And I felt like such a phony um, that I kept having these horrible anxiety attacks because I was a phony. So you felt like that, that people were going to say about you, well, Evelyn, why are you trying to help me get sober? And you're a drunk yourself. And I don't mean to be so crass in in saying it that way, but, um, I can imagine that because Evelyn, I feel like that, that people, you, you, you bring up a good point. And you and you may not have meant to do it, but you really bring up such a good point. We are living in an age where people have manufactured their lives mm-hmm. with social media and you know all the different things, you know, the platforms that people have. There are a lot of times that people don't want you to see who they really are. They want you to see what face what what they say on facebook or linkedin or twitter or instagram or whatever it is they want you to see that part of them and i I can imagine again trying to put myself in that moment i can imagine because it would have to be a house of cards feeling right you you just feel like i'm building this life i'm trying to help other people Meanwhile, I've got a problem that I can't correct myself. And, you know, there have been times in my life I've been a hypocrite. I understand. I know what a hypocrite looks like. You know, there were times. I was telling my son the other day, I said, I can remember, you know, being a senior in high school and going to church on Sunday and being on the platform and playing music. And then you know, cussing and doing whatever I wanted to do Monday through Saturday and just, you know, saying a quick little Lord, forgive me prayer for all the, the stuff I did during the week that didn't line up with what I was, what I said I was and then get up on Sunday morning and, Oh, here we go. We're going to have church, you know, praise the Lord. I, I, but, but I, but I wasn't, I was a kid one. I was a kid then, but two, I, that that is a weight that I still remember some 30 years later. Like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. That's terrible. No, you know, hypocrites get found out when, when you had to just go ahead and say, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my foot down. I'm, I'm doing this. Were you afraid? You, You mentioned the anxiety, but what was the anxiety really about for you? Was it, was it being exposed as someone that, that people thought, well, she's a fraud or a phony, or was it maybe fear of losing your job or take me behind that anxiety? Because I've got to think that felt that had to feel like a thousand pound weight around your neck every day that you were working at a treatment center and, and having a problem yourself. Well, the thing about alcoholism is the denial that goes along with it. All of us think we're too smart to actually succumb to this disease. 
So I was no exception. I thought, I know everything there is to know about alcoholism. I'm teaching other people. Nobody needs to know that I personally have this problem. And I don't know. Well, I do know. We have to surrender. We have to surrender to the fact that it's a disease and we can't, we're powerless over it. And I still wanted to believe that I could control it. That if I chose not to drink, I wouldn't drink. And I did choose not to drink, but I ended up going to treatment because I was going crazy. Wow. Well, and again, there there are people that, you know, they, they say, I've never, I've never, I, I'm full confession, full transparency. I have had alcohol in my mouth one time and I spit it out. I was a senior in high school. I found out, somebody said, somebody gave me a drink of a wine cooler. When I found out what it was, I immediately just spit it out of my mouth. That's the only time that I've had alcohol. Um, one, because I had a dad that, that would not tolerate it. If I brought it into his house or anything, it was going to be bad news. And I, I, I had a healthy respect for my dad, maybe even a healthy fear, but my dad was not allowing it in our house. My mom and dad both. But even as an adult, I just didn't want any, that just didn't, it didn't satisfy me. It didn't, did nothing for me. It had no attraction. So I, I can't imagine that. But I've struggled with my weight most of my adult life. I've had weight loss surgery and I've struggled. So I understand how you can be addicted to things like that, that have a part of, you, of on your body like that. And addiction, no matter what you get addicted to, it, it has a hold on you. You know, you think about it. You, um, you, you go, you know, I love chocolate. I love, I love sweets. I, I mean, I, I just, I like food. Mm -hmm. I really, I do like food. And so I, I just, I understand what that's like, but I also know too, being a Christian and I want to get your take on this. Okay. I, I want to go. I normally do not overly go to spiritual things, but I, I do want to go here in, in a spiritual way for just a moment. If, if we can, I know we can with, with yes. you. I feel like to some degree, and this is just my opinion, and some people may get offended by this, but I'm just going to say it. This is what I believe. I believe it is a disease, but I do believe to some degree there is a spiritual stranglehold that comes along with it with alcoholism and things like that. I do believe there are some spiritual there, you know, there, there are spirits that come with that just as any other addiction brings spirits because you can be addicted. Like I said, you can be addicted to food. You can be addicted to exercise. You, you can, you can have something have a hold on you to some degree that God has to deliver you from to really free your mind. How was your walk? Did you have a walk with the Lord at this time that you were trying to battle these differing forces going on in your life? 
I believe that the force you're talking about was with me in my childhood. My father was an active alcoholic. He was emotionally abusive and he was afraid of God. He was terrified of God. And he told me when I was seven years old, if you fight with your brothers, God will come and take one of them away. And when I was nine years old, God did come and take one of them away. And I got really, really, really angry at God. And I felt like I needed to protect everybody I loved from God. And that's very much a part of my story. It took me a long, long time to actually surrender to the idea that God might love me. I never heard that. My mother was very uh, spiritual, religious. She was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Methodist, but we grew up in a hellfire brimstone church. And I just was angry and rebellious my whole life. Yeah, I can see that. And, and I'll tell you this, I, I don't want to go here for a minute. And I so appreciate your transparency and your honesty. And, and I, I do, I enjoy where this conversation is going. I feel like we're going deep into some areas because what I'm hearing in this, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Here's what I'm hearing, that your father was an alcoholic and he was being abusive, but you have to be afraid of God. Like those things to me are diam they're they're just polar opposites. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like I know a God, I know a God that delivers from alcoholism. I know a God that delivers from pornography and and deliver and, and not those things in my life. I've seen those things in others. A, a radical transformation of God just doing incredible works in people that struggle with those things. So when I hear you say that, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. I can't imagine you being a seven-year-old little girl and trying to wrap your mind around it because here I am a middle-aged man and I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it. When was it that, that things started adding up for you? Because you mentioned losing a sibling when you were nine. I can't imagine that. And wanting to protect, and, and, and that is a very natural reaction. But when did those things start adding up for you? Like, God is not against me. He's for me. And he wants, he wants to love me. Were you a teenager? Did it, or did that manifest in you as an adult? When did that all come together for you to say, no, wait a minute. I know what my father's telling me, but I know the spirit of the Lord that's drawing on my heart, what the, what the heavenly father's telling me. Well, it took a number of years. I, I have had a lot of therapy. It took a number of years for me to, I mean, I, I gave God lip service, but I didn't really, really believed he loved me. I have a story I can tell you if you want to hear Please, it. Please. I would. Yes, absolutely. When I was nine years old, one of our hired men tried to molest me. Mm. And he um, got interrupted by my father who had came back to the car that we were sitting in. This is all in my book. Um, and 
my father stopped at a gas station. My mother was in the hospital. That's why we were in the car. He stopped at a gas station. He bought me a pinwheel. And I'm in the back seat, and I have the window rolled down. And I'm loving my pinwheel because all those beautiful, beautiful colors. And all of a sudden, the pinwheel flies out the window. And I start crying. And the hired man turned around, and he said, I am so ashamed of you for crying. And I thought, all right, I'm never talking to you again. So years later, I am in therapy. It's called theophostic therapy, and it has to do with um, spiritual transformation. And I am in therapy, and I have worked with this guy a couple of times. And this particular time, I am just throwing a fit and stomping my foot and screaming at God. And the therapist says to me, Evelyn, do you see Jesus anywhere? And I turned, and there he was. Wow. And he said to me, who do you think made your pinwheel fly out the window? Hmm. That was years later. That was the first time I totally accepted that I am loved, and I am accepted, and I am here for a purpose. And I'm doing everything I can to fulfill that purpose because there's lots of people like me. Wow. That is so powerful because, again, everybody has a different perspective. And especially when you're a Christian, you have a different way or a different perspective of how you come to God or how you find the love of Jesus for yourself. You know, I, I grew up in, all I've ever known is church from the time I was a baby. It's all I've ever known because that's what my parents did. My parents met at church, had me when they were 19 and 17. And from that moment on, I, I, that's all I've ever known. And so I, I can't imagine what a light bulb transformative moment when you finally realize here's the love of Jesus. Here it is right here in this moment. You're all the time. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. It was, but, but you know, Evelyn, we, we, there are times that we're harder on ourselves than the Lord is hard on the, is harder on us. We, we, we're, we're more judgmental of ourselves than the Lord ever is about us. You know, and so that, that is, that, that's so, we got to step aside, take a break because I could stay here all day, but we want to step aside and take a break. When we come back. I, I want Evelyn to tell more of her story. This is such an incredible conversation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying it. My guest is author, counselor, Evelyn Lighty, who joins me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Please, you do not want to miss this when we come back from a break. Come back with us here on the Intentional Encourager podcast.
everybody, Brian Sexton. I want to take a moment and tell you about my friend Harry Spate and his new book, Selling with Dignity. Harry has taken an age-old concept of sales, and he's put a new twist to it, and I love the direction that he's taken with Selling with Dignity. And here's what's encouraging about Harry's book. Instead of viewing people as numbers and machines, salespeople are now given the tools and the encouragement to be dignified in their approach. Here's what Harry says. He says, selling is an honorable profession when it's done right. When sellers feel they're valuable and have integrity and respect, this opens the door for better conversations and eventually relationship. This book puts an end to sleazy sales tactics and proves why selling with dignity can be done and it leads to massive success. And I couldn't agree more. Go to sellingwithdignity.com, get your copy today. And if you want Harry to sign it, he'll do that for you. Again, go to sellingwithdignity.com and pick up your copy today of the new book by Harry Spate, Selling with Dignity. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Evelyn, I've got to go back for a couple of minutes in your story. You mentioned you wrote your first book in 1980 as a way to get therapy. You mentioned an abusive relationship. When you wrote that book as a revenge, do you, if you could go back, I want, let me, let me ask this. I want to, I want to get this perspective. If you could go back 40, some 42 years later, it's 2022. Now we record this. You published that book in 1980. You wrote that book in 1980. If you could go back 42 years and sit across the, the table or sit in, in, in a living room setting like you're in now or something like that, and you could sit across the room from yourself or you could sit in a, in a, in a room with yourself. What do you think this Evelyn would tell that Evelyn in a conversation? I would tell that Evelyn not to take it personally that all the remarks my father made when he was drunk and all the remarks my former husband made when he was drunk wasn't personal against me. It was them talking about how they felt about themselves. And I think that the thing that helps my clients the most is when I tell them, do not take it personally. Whatever anybody says to you is not about you. If I could have known that, it would have made my life much easier. I love that. Whatever, whenever anyone says a, uh, can you say that again? I want to make sure that I get, that we get that, that point. That is such a powerful point. Whatever someone says about you. When they say to you is not about you. It has nothing to do with you. Wow. That is so powerful. They say it to you, but it's not about you. And you know, that, that is, that is such a great point because I can think about times early in, in my marriage. I've been married 25 years to my wife and I could go back to younger days where I've probably said some things. Like, you know, my wife, you don't listen. You don't, you don't listen to me. 
And if I'm on, if I, if I would have, if me now going back and putting my arm around 25 year old Brian and saying, Hey bud, you're not talking about her. You're talking about yourself. Cause I, I could totally see that Evelyn. There were times that I, I wasn't abusive to my wife, but I, I probably said some things like, well, you're not, I probably inflamed a lot more arguments from, from that very thing that you just said. I was putting it at her when it probably was, was on me and I should have been. And, and the older I've gotten, I've tried to take a lot more ownership. Do you find a lot of times, let me ask you this about abusive people. How often have you seen abusive people take ownership of things? Is it a small percentage or is it, is it just person dependent? I hope I'm asking the right question there because there's a lot of, there's a ton of truth in what you just said, but I want to, I want to try to see how much ownership have you found abusive people take in themselves? Well, I'm sorry to say not a lot. However, if you get their attention, they will sometimes take responsibility and there's different ways to get their attention. One thing is after you tell somebody something three times, stop talking and start acting. I recently told my client, she has a family member that yells at her and calls her names. She's asked her not to do it several times. I said, stop talking. What happens when she opens her mouth is you leave the room. And of course it makes them even more angry, but eventually they catch on. Mm -hmm. Oh, I treat her like that. Where does that, in your experience, do you find, and here's where I want to go with, with the, with this part of the conversation. I feel like social media has caused people to treat each other worse than they've ever treated each other in their lives because, and I was telling this the other day to somebody, Evelyn, I believe that, that the last, that, that, that the advent of social media, the greatest negative that it's brought, and I want to get your perspective on this, the greatest negative that social media has brought to us. It has made us, it has removed the ability to have a civil discussion, even when two people disagree on the topic. And I love what you said there about name calling and abusive language and things like that. I want to get your perspective on how social media has affected that do you feel like that is the case am i completely off base about that theory because i just feel like what i see out there is like i don't think without social media if we were sitting across the room from each other we would talk to each other in this way i agree i think a lot of people text negative and, and bad things to each other and when i go on Facebook, for example, I belong to a lot of recovery groups. 
And in some of those recovery groups, there are people yelling at each other and they use four letter words in that. I find that really off-putting. And I usually strike them from, because I don't need to listen to that and I'm not going to. Wow. And, and the note that I'm writing down here is social media's addition to abusive language. And really, and, and Evelyn, I'm dumbfounded why people would feel like that they have to be abusive to someone they don't even know. Or if they know that person, why it, it would we would never we would never go take out a billboard on someone and say, um, Joe Smith is the worst human being on the planet because he is a Republican. He's a conservative Republican. We would never plaster that anywhere, take out a newspaper ad and and say this about someone publicly. But but it seems like, well, I can I can sit here on my phone and I can call Joe Smith the worst name in the world and that'll show him. I, I, I'm dumbfounded by this philosophy. When you work with people, how much of their anxiety, things that they're trying to overcome, comes from social media? I think a lot of it. Um, I don't know that for a fact, but I think the thing is, social media gives you a certain sense of being invisible, anonymity, you can say what you want to say and you don't have to worry about somebody tracking you down. And I believe very strongly that we're, we're not teaching our young people proper manners or respect for authority. And so they have none. Well, and, and here's something else too. Not only respect for authority, but respect for each other for fellow man, for, right. for just simple human decency. Yes. And, and, and listen, folks, I, I don't want people to go, well, Brian, you get preachy here. You, you know, you're just trying. No, I, I just believe that when, 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 when our son, when, when our son was probably 11 or 12, he came to, to, to my wife and I, his mom. And he said to us, he said, I want to get a Facebook page. And I said, you got three rules. First rule is your mom and I see everything you post. The first two friend requests are to me and your mom. Secondly, you don't post anything that, that, that isn't uplifting, humorous, factual. You don't post anything that tears anybody down. I said, because rule number three is I have the final authority of whether or not you continue to have a Facebook page. And, and that's the thing is, is that I wanted to set the standard mm -hmm. for him because here's the thing I have gotten to the point at times that, and now this guy's a good friend of mine, but we were getting in a disagreement. He was a West Virginia university fan. I'm a Marshall university fan. And he's like, man, if you don't like this, you can, you can leave the conversation. And it struck me to the, to the heart. Like I'm really acting like an idiot here. 
I am really acting terribly here. And we can laugh about it now, but at the time, he really said something that, that made me think, Evelyn, I, I want to go here with you. What's the biggest thing that abusive people struggle with? Is it affirmation? Is it validation? Or is it the simple fact of just put, what is it that they, that, that most abusive, that people that are in abusive situations, what's the one thing that they struggle with the most? You mean the abuser or the person being abused? The person being abused. Well, people who have grown up in, in functional loving homes don't allow themselves to be abused very long. It might happen one or once or twice, but then they're out of there. But people like me who grew up in a home where I was used to listening to abusive words um, and seeing all the dysfunction, it didn't even occur to me how abusive it was for a long time. So it was just a continuation of what I was used to. Mm -hmm. and that's the thing. Um, about people who are being abused, a lot of times it's just a continuation and they have to seek help to be able to um, get a clear picture of what's actually going on. Did you feel like, if, and I want to step back because there is, I don't want to miss getting into to parts of your story, but, but I'm so intrigued by what you're saying. Growing up, becoming a teenager and things like that because most kids if and and you make an outstanding point it's the home it's the environment you grow up in like my dad and i had an incredible relationship until the day he died my mom and i have a good relationship is that you know my dad was my role model in a lot of ways now in a lot of ways i didn't want to be like my dad because i was like ah my dad didn't particularly do that right. I don't like that. I'm going to do it differently. But when we, growing up in the home that, you know, you, your father was, was abusive. What, what kind of role model was your mother to you growing up? Because your mom, you talked about earlier, your mom loved the Lord, but was your mom a good role model to you? Was she the kind of mom that just kind of turned her head and just kind of said, you know, I hope all this goes away. And how did that shape you, the role model that you had with your mom? How did that shape you as a mother? My mother was English and all that implies. She was beautiful. She was very ladylike. She wouldn't, she never swore. She never drank. She never smoked. She was having one child after another and was very caught up in all of the pain and agony that she was going through. And I was just kind of out there. So I didn't really have much of a relationship with her till I got older. Wow. But I did try to protect her. So you, so was it when you were an adult, when it was, when you, when you became a mother yourself, that, that your relationship with your mom changed or do you remember that moment where the dynamics kind of changed between you and your mom? The dynamics got better as I got older and I was able to 
talked to her somewhat about what had occurred in my childhood. Um, but for the most part, we were raised to protect my mother. My dad always said she's a lady and she needs protection and it's your job to protect her. So all of us did. Wow. See, I'm trying to put, Evelyn, please forgive me. And I don't want to be chauvinistic. What, what's that? I said, we're good. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be chauvinistic in, in saying this. Okay. But this is how I feel as a husband. I believe as a husband, my number one job is to protect my wife. I believe that, that, that the, the day that I said I do to my wife, that if it's me or her, if someone breaks in my house and they're going to try to do harm to her, no, they got to go through me first. And same thing with my son. I believe that, that the man, and this is just me and forgive me if there's any ladies that are listening. I promise you, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic. This is just the way that I, I feel. I believe it's my job to protect my wife. That it's my job to lay down my life for my wife. If that requires it, if there's ever a, and God, I, I pray every day that God protects us and keeps his hand up on us. But I've always felt like it was my responsibility to be the protector and I think in large part, Evelyn, it's the way I grew up because my dad was the protector. You know, my dad protected me in a lot of situations. And even when we worked together and we rode together, I still saw that even though we were peers and coworkers, my dad, there were a couple of times that my dad came to my defense, even with people we worked with. He, they were like, he was like, no, listen here. He's still my son. Don't, don't bother him. Don't mess with him. Don't do it, you know, because that, that the dad in him, I just find that I find that dynamic so interesting, Evelyn, because the way I grew up, it was always, and again, forget if I, if I'm, I'm really trying hard not to sound chauvinistic. You're not. And I'm not trying to be, but the way that I grew up in the way, what was in, what was in emboldened to me as I became a young man was you're the protector. If it comes between you and her, you've got to step in there. And I just find that, that your, your father's philosophy was you had to protect your mom, not the other way around. You got to understand, Brian, alcohol and drugs change the personality of the person who used them. So when my dad was sober, and he could be sober for weeks at a time. He was that man you're describing. When he was drinking, he was a whole different person. And that is what makes this disease so incredibly confusing for children in particular who live with it. Because on the one hand, he's everything you said a man should be. And on the other hand, when he's drinking, he does a 180 and is completely different and so when you're a kid and you're watching this, the confusion is rampant. Yeah. Who is this man when, you know, because most kids don't understand addiction. Well, let's face it, few adults do. Well, and, and here, and, and, and again, 
here, here's the analogy that I'm trying to make in my mind. It would be like to me, if I told my son, son, I love your mom. I'm going to be faithful to your mom till the, till the very end. And then I go, um, Hey son, your mom's not home. I'm going to bring I'm going to bring another woman in here. And tomorrow night I'm going to bring another woman in here. I'm going to bring but I love your mom. I'm faithful to your mom. I love your mom. That would be so confusing to him. He'd be like, wait a minute, dude, what are you doing here? And so to me, it, it, it's, I can see that because it's diametrically opposed to normal, rational thoughts and behaviors and thinking and things like that. When you were in the middle of your own abusive situation as a spouse yourself, how were you able to protect your kids? And, and what did you do to kind of shield them from it? Because I would have to think that all this is coming back to your mind, what you went through as a child, you're kind of living it as an adult, just in a different way. How, how were you able to protect your kids? Were you able to shield your kids in some way? I tried. However, I wasn't much better at it than my mom. The only thing I did different than my mom is I picked them up and left wow. in an effort to keep them from getting hurt any further. Wow. I, I'm just amazed at this. Evelyn, I want to be respectful of your time. I want to be respectful of the audience's time because we could talk for hours about this situation. And folks, I, I will tell you this. I've done well over 200 episodes of the Intentional Encourager podcast. Easily, this has been the most, arguably the most unique episode I believe that we've done. But I believe it's one of the most important episodes that we've done. Because, and, and let me take a strong stance here. And I will own publicly what I'm about to say. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form in any type of abusive situation, whether it's physical, whether it's, whether it's verbal, we do not need that in homes today. Men and women need to take control of themselves. And, and I will go a step further. We don't need it on the internet. If you're abusing someone, if you're saying things you ought not to be saying on social media, it's time to get yourself in control and get yourself under control because anything you say can and will be used against you and you have to own it. And so I'm not trying to preach there, but I, this is, this is an important an important podcast episode because we need to address these situations. We need to address them and we need to, you know, not be abusive. You know, and, and again, the Bible commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How can we as men get behind pulpits? How can we as men, and I'm talking to the guys right now, because the Lord talks to us first. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. How can I as a husband stand and say, I love God, but I'm treating my wife like crap. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I, I, I just can't see it. And guys, we've got to be the role models. If you're a Christian, biblically, you're challenged to be the one first. And I'm, again, I hope I'm not sounding chauvinistic to folks. But if you're a Christian and you're listening to this podcast, you need to get in the scripture because the scripture commands the guys to go first and do this. Evelyn, forgive me for, get, for getting on a, on a tangent there. That's the preacher coming out in me. I, I, I don't apologize for that. But I would just ask you as we, as we wrap this up, and I, I, again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for bringing such an important topic to us and us talking so organically and free-flowing about this topic and the things that you brought to us. But I would be remiss if we didn't take just a moment for you to give some folks out there that might be going through this similar situation your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. First thing I would say is don't take it personally. What someone says to you is not about you. Next thing I would say is pray and trust God. He is trustworthy. I've learned that the hard way, and I totally believe it now. And the third thing I would say to you is go to my website, www.evelynlighty.com. Email me or meet me on Facebook. I'm here. Wow. That, that is so powerful. Her website is Evelyn Lighty, and that's www.evelynleite.com. She's got all of her books there. You can find her resources there. Um, and I want to echo what Evelyn has said. If you're in that situation, talk to someone. Talk to someone. You cannot bear that burden alone. And if you feel like you, 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 you say, Brian, Evelyn, I've prayed, I've asked God. The Lord, the, the scripture reminds us that the Lord is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And, and the, the Lord, other thing yeah, I would say. Yeah, please go ahead. No, 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 please don't apologize. Take, take this. Out of Romans 8.28 and believe this truth. God can take all things and make them work together for good. I love that. That is so good. The truth of Romans 8, 28, you're exactly right. And that scripture starts with, and we know. Mm -hmm. And we know that all things work together for the good that to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Evelyn Lighty, this has been, again, let me re reiterate this point. This has been arguably one of the most powerful conversations we've had here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And I want to thank you again for, for having it with me today. Thank you so much, Evelyn. I appreciate you being on. Wonderful to meet you, Brian. Wow. 
My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.